Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Joining us on the program now, and it's an honor to speak uh, with him, is General Rick Hellier, the former Chief of Defense Staff of the Canadian Forces, uh, author of A Soldier First. General, uh, I've been a great admirer of yours for many years. Uh, thank you for what you've done for this country. Thank you for the service, and thanks for coming on the program. Hey, Roy, thanks very much. Uh, uh, well, for what I've done for the country, I'm not sure a lot. However, let me just tell you, it was a labor of love uh, that from the start. I loved being a soldier, and I loved serving Canada, and I loved wearing the maple leaf on my uniform. Yes, sir. Uh, also with us is Bruce Moncor. Bruce is a former Canadian Armed Forces member. He was very badly wounded by friendly fire in Afghanistan. Just think about, if you've ever seen an A-10 Warthog, it's the ugliest fighter jet in the world, but it does tremendous damage. It's a tank killer. And Bruce took part of a shell from a Warthog, from an A-10, in his uh, brain, and uh, we talked to him after he was recovered, uh, and was going through his terrible time with Veterans Affairs, but he's just done remarkable things. Bruce, it's great to talk to you again. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Roy. Thanks for having me on. I, too, uh, loved being a soldier, and wearing that maple leaf was always uh, one of the proudest uh, things I could ever do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, General, you'll appreciate this. I, I was in the RCNR, and I achieved the uh, great rank of ordinary seaman standard, and I fought very hard to stay there. And, uh, and Roy, the, the Navy is built on seamen who do their job, keep those ships going, train, 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 and are always ready when we need them. Exactly. And, you know, that, that's the reality of it, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. And, and there's, there is pride. You know, you talk about, you both talk about the pride of wearing a maple leaf. And, and I remember being sworn in. And there was just this incredible, I really felt so proud because Canada is my adopted country. And I became a Canadian citizen. As an immigrant kid, I became a Canadian citizen. And I was wearing a Canadian military uniform. And I could think of nothing better than that. You know, I'm the son of a, of a Dunkirk veteran. So, so that all pulls together. General, talk to us about Remembrance Day. What do we need to, what do we need to remember about Remembrance Day? Just, I think, remember that how much we've been gifted. That we've been gifted this awesome land that, that is beyond beautiful. You know, from the, the coast of Newfoundland to the frozen tundra of the north to the islands of British Columbia. We've been gifted this awesome nation that we, we live in and feel secure and it's peaceful and tranquil and serene. And we've been gifted this awesome, awesome country uh, that we make our home. And, and we've been gifted that as a result of the service and sacrifice of quite literally millions of Canadian men and women uh, supported by their families who stood beside them in the toughest of times. And they did it with great sacrifice. You know, in, in our military history, we've had 120,000 Canadians uh, give their lives in service to Canada and to us. And if we can't remember that incredible service, and then hundreds of thousands of others wounded both physically and mentally. And if we can't take at least one day a year, but actually preferably much more than that, and remember it, we're, we, are, we, are, we have become far too self-centered and, and far too forgetful of what got us here. And if you fail to remember and learn from the past, you could be doomed to repeat the mistakes of that past. So I think remembering is just, my goodness, what incredible service we had and what incredible gifts we've been given, and we should be thankful for it. Most definitely. Bruce, as, uh, as you were fighting in Afghanistan and, and then when you were wounded and, and very, very badly wounded and in danger of losing your life, um, how much 
what were you thinking about as far as Canada is concerned and wearing the uniform as being part of the military after that happened to you? Well, um, I just remember, you know, an initial injury, um, just basically not thinking I was going to survive. Um, I've said this many times that uh, when I was shot, um, I honestly uh, felt this new sensation, and I would later figure out it was because I had had my, where I was shot in the head, that I had actually my exposure there where I could feel the wind like and it was such a new sensation feeling the wind on the inner part of your one skull as you could imagine and i remember just giving up just thinking uh, there's no way i'm going to live through this i'm you know these are going to be my last moments and i just kind of had like almost a, a peaceful sense of serenity take over and you know what happened after that roy was uh these soldiers came and saved my life i could tell you there's you know Jeff, uh, Jeff Rainey, uh, Michael Farah, uh, Jerry Day, then there was the medics, and then they flew, you know, then there's the Chinook helicopters, uh, pilots that, and that loaded me on the Chinook and, and, and flew me to Kandahar Air Base, and then I had a, uh, my first of two surgeries, and when I came to from that surgery, I was covered in a lead-lined blanket. And I asked the nurse to, to, and I asked her, what, why am I covered in a lead-lined blanket? And she said, during my surgery, a rocket attack had, had hit the base. And the doctors covered me with a, a lead-lined blanket if, in case any shrapnel were to hit me during the surgery and continued to, to work on me to, despite the risk to themselves. I mean, I could tell you hundreds of stories like that, but, I mean, these guys put, you know, everything at risk to take me back to base, and they uh, essentially saved my life. So uh, me being here is not just me fighting through, you know, my injuries and, and overcoming it. There was a lot of people that came together that got me from, you know, where I thought all was, all was lost to now speaking to you on the phone. That's just amazing. That's just incredible, and it is a family and it is it is a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and it is a family. General Hiller, when you hear Bruce talk about that, um, and, and you've looked into the eyes of the new members of the Canadian military, what does this do to you when you hear Bruce relate that? Well, uh, first of all, I'm filled with pride, and my memory flashes back to different kinds of experiences from what Bruce had when, when I wasn't in, in at risk of dying. But, you know, I would get tired. I'd get run down as a leader, as a senior commander, as a chief of defense staff, and my solution to that, my remedy, was to get myself out amongst our troops. And just as Bruce described, you know, they had no reverse on them. They were they were filled with enthusiasm. They were going to succeed. And, and that energy, you know, transmitted itself to me in literally minutes and hours. And I'd come back into Ottawa, for example, and not, not only would I be fired up and prepared to win any fights, I'd go looking for fights to get into uh, because I was, I was so fired up by those incredible people. We have the most incredible sons and daughters of our nation serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. And the sad part about that is the Canadians, the 37 million Canadians uh, on a daily basis, almost never get to see them or hear them and hear of them. And sometimes, in fact, they only hear of them when it's a negative event, when somebody's gotten in trouble. They're incredible. They inspired me every single day. And, and I keep telling folks in corporate Canada and say, look, 
you know, when you're a leader and you want you want to be successful, you you have one job, and that's to focus on people and make sure they're looked after, make sure they're focused, make sure they're supported. Let them know that you're behind them by your actions, and, and the return to you is incredible. I got inspired by those people every day, Roy. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it, General. And when you look at, you, you see the love from so many Canadians when you see the repatriation ceremony or you see the repatriation on the Highway of Heroes, as the highway, the high, Highway 401 in Ontario is lined with people and the overpasses are lined with people and Canadian flags and, you know, signs of thanks. It just speaks to the passion that so many Canadians have for our armed forces, but it needs to become more broad and we have to remember our history and what was, what was given. And Bruce, this is where I'm going to segue to you. Tell us as much as you can or wish to about the project that you're, that you've started. So, what we're looking at is the fact that um, nobody in Afghanistan was awarded the Victoria Cross. And uh, myself and the general and a team have put together a, uh, I guess, a two-hour special that we want to broadcast next Remembrance Day and present this to the Canadian people, and which we've uh, uh, selected 10 Canadian soldiers whose stories in Afghanistan are absolutely incredible and uh, who we feel had had the best opportunity of being uh, possibly upgraded. <clears throat> and we want to try to get Canada's first uh, uh, Afghan Victoria Cross, also uh, the first time that Canada as a country would hand out the Victoria Cross, because in 1993 we took over that process and uh, have not given it out since we took it over. And that would be, in fact, Canada's 100th Victoria Cross uh, you see, Roy, we're in a, a kind of an influx as a country, as you know, with uh, the COVID situation, uh, with uh, um, not being able to go to the Cenotaphs for Remembrance Day and do Rem Remembrance Day and maybe not be able to go to our legions. It's definitely a very high risk for our remaining World War II veterans to be going uh, out and about on days like this. And uh, so we've decided that, you know, although we, we, were little, we won't be able to do it this year, next year, uh, we would like to have this uh, special and present it to the Canadian people as a way that we can do some remembrance, uh, bring a little bit more of a light to the soldiers that's, that, that's fought in Afghanistan and show Canadians some of these honestly superhuman feats of bravery and uh, sacrifice that these uh, men and women uh, did in Afghanistan. Well, that's fantastic. And, and the, 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 the title is Valor, right? So I, I expect to be seeing it on a television screen in my house uh, next Memorial Day. It just sounds like such an incredible uh, effort. And, and General Hillier, uh, Bruce told me earlier in a conversation we had off the air that the Afghanistan campaign, uh, which lasted for was the longest military campaign Canada's been involved in, it's the only one where there was no Victoria Cross awarded. Well, it, it, there was no Victoria Cross awarded in Korea either, uh, Roy. But okay, what I, I think the point Bruce makes the point Bruce makes here is, is really key right now. Canada developed uh, the, its own Victoria Cross, the Canadian Victoria Cross, in 1993, and we produced them from the the cannon, from the metal from the cannon of the guns captured at Crimea way back in the 1800s, and, and they sit now in, in the mint in Ottawa, and they are there. Not one has been presented. We thought that maybe Canadians should have a voice when they see those incredible stories of of 10 of our star of military valor winners who did such 
magnificent things in service to us. And, and maybe Canadians would say, it, you know, uh, one or two or, or perhaps even three uh, need to be upgraded. That's a miscarriage of, of the way we do things in our nation. And they need to be recognized differently. And maybe there would be some pressure from Canadians at large to say, hey, we need to award the Canadian Victoria Cross to one or more of those incredible soldiers. And, and at the same time, as Bruce also said, we get to tell their stories. And their stories are absolutely incredible. And then the third thing I'd say, and, and we've chatted about this, we'd like to make that show, that two-hour special on the, on the 10 individuals, we'd make, like to make that into a pilot project where we tell the stories of incredible Canadian heroes uh, that have served us throughout history. And whether that's, you know, Padre John Foote, who won the Victoria Cross on, on the beaches of Dieppe, or Sergeant Smokey Smith, who won the Victoria Cross in, in Italy, their stories... When you, when you hear their stories and you stand on the beaches at Dieppe or you stand up in the Liri Valley, Valley or the Ortona line in Italy and, and you think about what they did and how they did it, it just sends shivers down your spine. We want to tell those stories and we want Canadians to be much better aware and much better educated about who has served them in uniform and what that's handed to them and therefore to be appreciative and remember. Absolutely. And Bruce, final question for you. Is, th- is there somewhere that Canadians can find out about this yet, or, or is that coming? So on the 10th, we're going to be doing a release. Uh, uh, we're going to be releasing our, 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 our Facebook, our Twitter, our um, pages, our Instagram page. Uh, we're going to start a YouTube channel, and we're going to start uploading some videos. So um, uh, it, the, the title is, uh, General, if you could help me out there, the title Valor in the face of the enemy. Correct. Yes. And uh, a, a little point on that uh, about the, the additional um, uh, 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 programs that we want to do on top of that is, like the general said, there was no Victoria Cross in uh, Korea, but we had that, that one battle where we had that incredible uh, bravery of the PPCLI there where they withstood the, uh, the uh, Chinese attack there. Um, where no one got the Victoria Cross there. There's others like Francis Pegamogbagu. Uh, uh, he was a, a sniper in the First World War, an indigenous man, and he had over 378 confirmed kills, the most out of anybody in World War One. and he didn't get the Victoria Cross. And I think maybe uh, at the time, you look at someone like Billy Bishop, who obviously he had the most uh, confirmed kills as a fighter pilot. He gets right. the Victoria Cross. Maybe there might have been an issue with skin color of the indigenous sniper. So maybe we should relook at his file, and maybe we should make start yeah. making some recommendations that they get upgrades. For sure. So absolutely. So that's the tenth. So that's Tuesday. And what's the title again? Valor in the face of the enemy. Valor okay. in the face of the enemy, Roy, and uh, we want to tell those stories, but if I could just add, as of this moment, we've got zero money to tell those stories, so if there are awesome Canadians out there who want to support, you know, hey, articulating our history and the people who made it for us and gifted us this great nation, uh, we'd love to hear from them with donations. Okay, so so we'll, we'll look for that on Tuesday uh, on, on uh, digital platforms, and I know people will get behind you. I know I will. So. Well, thank you very much, and we expect they will. This is exciting, and, you know, it's emotional. And, oh, my God, goodness, this is Canadian. This is yes, Canadian. Is. We don't tell our stories, and here's a chance to do so. We've been talking a lot, of course, about the United States election, and just a moment ago with uh, Terry Madonna, professor at uh, 
Franklin at Marshall College in Pennsylvania, the founder of the Keystone Poll, the oldest poll conducted exclusively for Pennsylvania. That's the state that carried, sort of was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back as far as the election call was concerned. We're joined now by uh, Jay Jacobs. He's the New York State Democratic Party chairman. Mr. Jacobs, thank you so much for the time. Were you confident in the last days before the vote? Well, you know, I, I was hopeful. I mean, being confident is not something that in my position uh, you, you tend to be. <laughs> so, you know, I, I thought I, you know, I thought that we would win, uh, but you never know. You never know in an election uh, who's going to come out to vote and what they're going to actually do. So what were the issues in the state of New York, particularly? I think pretty much the same as, as everywhere else. I, I think a, a, a large part, of course, was the presidency of Donald Trump, his behavior, his actions, his approach, uh, and lack of leadership on dealing with COVID-19, and, and then just the, the general tenor of his presidency. It just, you know, was distasteful to, to so many people. But, you know, you then took a look at all the problems that we have in this country, the challenges, and we wanted a leader that would meet those uh, problems, uh, would, would address the challenges and, and come up with solutions that, you know, would, would give us progress. So I think that's what it came down to here in New York as everywhere else. Talk to us, please, about how you see uh, U.S.-Canada relations under uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Normal. I think we go back to normal. Uh, Canada is our closest, not only our closest neighbor, of course, but friend and ally. Um, and, and it has been that way for decades. I think it goes back to normal. I think I think um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is going to have someone he can pick up the phone and call and have a normal conversation. Uh, of course, you know, U.S. interests and Canadian interests aren't always aligned. I mean, there are differences, trade in particular, and perhaps some other aspects. But I, I would say to you that it's going to be amicable the way it should be. We're good friends. That's how we should treat each other, with respect and uh, courtesy and decency. And that's what you're going to find. So uh, I'd like to just talk to you about uh, Mr. Biden for a moment. He didn't do very well in the primaries initially. He didn't do well at all in Iowa. And he finished fifth in New Hampshire. And he didn't really run an energetic campaign. Was that by design? Or did you think it was really, was it, was it Donald Trump against Joe Biden? Or was it Donald Trump against Donald Trump? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the primaries uh, in, in the United States are unique in, in that we put up front several states that between primaries and caucuses you know several states that uh would not go to the advantage of an establishment candidate so the iowa caucuses are infamous for promoting um challengers insurgent candidacies they always are uh, new hampshire is a very um uh, quirky kind of a place it's a wonderful state but the people are, are really very uh, uh discriminating in, in who they pick and look let's face it joe biden did not present as, you know, the John Kennedy-type candidate, you know, young, charismatic, and the rest. What Joe Biden was and is is a very decent, well-experienced man who's, uh, you know, able to lead and has, ha and has had the experience in leading. So that what happened was, I think, that you found when he got into South Carolina, and uh, it, it became a much more diverse population, um, he did very well. And then you went into Super Tuesday, a whole group of states, and they endorsed South Carolina's viewpoint and said, this is who we want to leave them. So I, I don't think it was a function uh, of anything other than just the calendar. And, and sometimes you have that. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. uh, it, it works just that way. But I, yeah. I, when you say he ran a, a, um, 
I'll, I'll subdued, say, fired her campaign. Is, is the word. Subdued. subdued. It, look, we're in a time where Democrats didn't feel it was a good idea to be running these massive rallies and to be jumping all over the country and getting people out. We felt um, that was counterproductive to the overall goal of keeping people alive, actually. Okay. Let me ask you one more. What Donald Trump did, and it was a lot different. Let me ask you another question about Canada. Uh, Mr. Biden has said that if he's elected president, and the energy sector is huge in this country, it's a massive part of our economy, he has said he would kill Keystone XL pipeline. Is he, you can't speak for him in this, but what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I mean, he's going to take a look at the you know, the environmental implications, and I I know how important. Look, uh, energy is important in the United States too. And between Pennsylvania and some of the Midwestern countries, you get down to Texas and Alaska. Uh, oil is big here in the in the United States, so it's dicey. But we have to remember something. You know, we're going through now. I think the twenty eighth hurricane of the hurricane season down in the uh, Gulf Coast and and uh, Florida. Right at this moment, we've got uh, another hurricane hitting uh, Cuba. You've got uh, f- uh, forest fires, you know, ravaging the the western states. California has been, you know, been, been hit just tremendously. Oregon, you know, Washington State, it's terrible. Colorado, you've got changes in climate that are changing the the oceans, and we've got to do something about it. So, first thing he's going to do is he's going to get back into the Paris uh, Climate Accords, and we're going to begin working on reducing our carbon emissions. We're never going to. Um, in the short term, get get rid of oil or natural gas, for that matter. You know, uh, it, it's just there's going to be a transition to more um, uh, renewable energy sources. So, so Mr. Jacobs, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, do I hear you saying that he would review Keystone XL as opposed to doing what he said he would do, and that kill it? Well, I, again, I think when you become the president, I know what he, he has said. When you become the president, um, you, you have to take everything under review and, and, and take a good look at it. I can't speak for him, and I don't know what he's going to do with that yeah, particular pipeline. Yeah, fair but, enough. Um, you know, I, I do, will tell you this. He, he's a, um, a reasonable and and very very intelligent uh, individual, and he's going to take a look at everything uh, as it comes to him and, and make his decisions accordingly. I appreciate you coming on the show. We have about a minute left. How do you reconcile with 70 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I, I think that there are lots of people who bought the argument that the Democrats are socialists, that we're going to pull everybody to the far left, that we don't support the police, we want to defund the police. There was a lot of nonsense uh, strewn in this campaign. And, you, you know, you have uh, um, someone in, in Donald Trump that a lot of people believe has helped the economy, helped their own financial position, and that's how Americans vote very often. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that he got you know, a, a solid amount of the vote, but let's remember it was the largest turnout we've seen in years. Joe Biden is probably going to be pushing near 80 million votes when it's all said and done. And the California vote and the rest of the New York absentee ballot vote comes in. These are heavy Democratic states, so the, the, the margin is going to get a lot wider. And, okay. and I think uh, you'll, you'll see that uh, uh, he's done very well in comparison to Trump as well. There's been a lot said about media coverage in that uh, U.S. election. A lot of accusations made, both sides. And uh, so how did media perform when it came to covering the election? And was it really uh, objective coverage or was it really advocacy media that, uh, that was experienced? Professor Jane Kirtley joins us, media ethics and the law professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, professor Kirtley has been a regular guest with us and 
Always appreciate what you tell us about uh, your assessment of, of media, Jane. So let me begin with this. Are mainstream media in the United States objective news services and analysis providers or have significant numbers, as has been accused, of American mainstream media become advocacy outlets? Good afternoon, Roy. I, I, I think I'm really happy you're drawing a distinction between mainstream media and other media because, to be honest, in some respects, I think the so-called mainstream media were very definitely also rans in the run-up to this election. Social media really dominated the debate and the discussion, whether we're talking about Twitter or Facebook or any of the other uh, social media platforms. The reality is that most Americans are not getting their news from the mainstream media. So in, to some extent, one could almost say it's almost irrelevant what they do because that's not where most people are getting their information and their disinformation, um, which is a huge issue, a huge problem, and a real challenge, not only for those platforms, but also for the so-called mainstream media that are trying to kind of keep up with it. Having said that, I, I, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Um, you know, Fox, uh, the cable channel, which is actually registered as an entertainment non-news uh, outlet, is often accused of being basically carrying water for the Republican Party and the Trump administration. My own assessment of their news side is that that is not fair. I think that they do a very good job. And, of course, as, as you know, they earned the ire of, of President Trump when they called Arizona for Joe Biden uh, before anybody else did. So I give them props for that. I also think there are distinctions between the cable news outlets and the broadcast news outlets, uh, partly because, frankly, the cable outlets come from a tradition that I think does tend to have a lot more opinion and less um, distinction between opinion and news. And so I tar CNN and MSNBC along with Fox uh, for, with that issue. Um, as far as broadcast is concerned, I think, again, increasingly irrelevant. But, um, you know, based on my viewing of it, I would say the newscasts are, are fair and, and accurate. Again, they have pundits on their Sunday morning talk shows, which is when we typically have them here. And obviously those are, are more opinionated. And as far as newspapers are concerned, sadly, um, with the exception of a handful, I, they have become increasingly irrelevant because most communities don't even have a newspaper anymore. It's interesting, isn't it, really, how things have changed and continue to change. I mean, I'm sitting here doing a radio program, which I've done for many, many years. And to me, media still means what I do, or television, um, cable, fine. Uh, I have no problem with that. But I don't think of, and I should, but I don't think of social media as being actually a, a, a news delivery service. But you're telling me, and I'm, I mean, I know this, I have to remind myself, tap myself on the skull and remind myself, it, it is part of the news delivery system now, a significant part. The, the digital side of things is, is, is huge and getting bigger. It is, and the dangerous part of it is, and I say this really from a nonpartisan perspective, but just from sort of a good governance perspective, is that they have not figured out who they are or what they are. When they want to be neutral platforms, they hide behind our Communication Decency Act, Section 230, that um, makes them immune from almost all liability for what is posted. When they want to be content creators, they claim that they're publishers and get all the protections of the First Amendment. 
And, of course, as you know, there's been quite a debate here uh, between Congress and certainly the Trump administration, but many others, too, about whether the U.S. government needs to step in and do some regulation. They have come late to the party, these social media companies, in terms of trying to monitor disinformation and misinformation themselves. But on the other hand, they're being accused by some of engaging in partisan what they call censorship. Uh, In my view, it's not really censorship because they're not the government. I don't like using the word censorship when we're talking about non-governmental entities. But I know that there are people, including friends of mine, who are saying this is this is censorship when you are basically deciding that what, for example, um, let's say a, a, a surrogate for the Trump administration makes some statement that they've decided is objectively false and they take it down. Jane, uh, can I just step to the side here for a moment and introduce a sidebar issue, because I think it's important to the overall discussion. Has America shifted philosophically significantly to the left in in the last number of years, uh, irrespective of the victory of Donald Trump in 2016? And is this particularly true, and I'll take you into your environment, universities and colleges? Um, you know, I there there are those who would say that, but on the other hand, depending upon who you talk to, I was reading something on the UK Guardian site today, and they were saying there there are no left wing people in governance in the United States. That that uh, Biden actually represents a 1980 Republican. Um, there are certainly loud factions um, on, at both extremes of the left and the right. But truly, I think compared to many other countries, to suggest that America has, you know, a significant left-wing slant, to my mind, is, is just not, not true. If, if it were true, I think, for example, we would have universal health care, which we don't, um, just picking that as an example. Um, it's being fought tooth and nail, being labeled as a socialist abomination, and um, not in the best interest of the American public, in my opinion. But that, I mean, that's just an example of something that has really been a non-starter in Congress, regardless of who's been president of the United States. You're very familiar with Canadian media, and you have uh, worked with Canadian media organizations. What do you think of Canadian media when you compare it to media in the United States? How do we perform? as far as being objective is concerned and doing a job of properly uh, informing our consumers. And, and if I can add to that, I think the consumer's taken the lead now, and the media organizations are trying to keep up with the consumer. But anyway, whether I'm right or right, wrong with that, you can tell me. But how, how do we do in Canada? Well, you know, again, I'm, I'm obviously on the other side of the border, and I'm not an expert, but I, you know, I find the Canadian media... Um, refreshing in in their uh, desire to try to be uh, fair and accurate in their assessments. Um, of course, you've got the CBC and the fact that it, you know, is a, it, we have nothing comparable to that here in the United States. And it strikes me that as with the BBC in the United Kingdom, they, you know, have a mandate about basically being uh, nonpartisan in their approach to news and information. On the other hand, I was looking at uh, front pages from newspapers around the uh, world this morning, and I noticed that Le Journal in Quebec had in French, after a picture, a photograph of Mr. Trump uh, out in French, 
um, I haven't seen anything quite like that here in the United States. So I sometimes think that uh, the Canadians, just a, like you know, our cousins in the United Kingdom, sometimes um, feel a little less constrained in in uh, their editorial commentary. But you know, I think on the whole, Canadians are served well by the media in your country. There seems to be a diversity of voices. You're a diverse voice. There's other uh, points of view that are heard on the radio uh, airwaves. So, you know, I, I don't want to fall all over myself, but I think there's good work being done there, especially pushing things like access to information, holding the police accountable, things like that. Those are the things I'm most familiar with because those are the kinds of things that get litigated. And it seems to me that um, there's watchdog journalism going in, on in Canada, and that's all to the good. Okay, I'll ask you to do one last thing for me, and I'm going to be involving our callers when you and I are finished speaking, and I'm going to ask them to, on a scale of 1 to 10, which number they would give Canada's media, and I'll ask you to do that for the U.S. media and for ours. I think you just gave us a passing mark in Canada. But what number, on a scale of 1 to 10, would you give the United States media for having done an honest and objective uh, job of reporting on the political parties and the election campaign? I'm sure many people would disagree with me on this, but I would give them a good solid seven. Um, I think that they have done um, the best they could, given the incredible situation that we've been experiencing in this country, especially in the last seven or eight months. Um, there are those who would say that they've been, quote-unquote, too hard on Donald Trump, but I think there's much to be known about what his administration is doing. It has an impact on every single person in the country, and calling him to account is not you know, being against him. It's simply reporting what's going on, which is what journalists are supposed to do. Before we talk to Charlie Angus, NDP Member of Parliament for Timmins, uh, James Bay, he's been the MP, I think, for 16 years, uh, Charlie also has a band called Grievous Angels, and he sent me um, uh, the new song that they recorded. They have a new, new CD out, but but Charlie was in, in Normandy in France last year, and he visited the, um, the uh, cemeteries with the Canadian war dead. Out of that visit came this song, Fields of Normandy, with Charlie Angus. You know, Charlie just gets you right in the heart, and we're just a couple of days away from Remembrance Day on Wednesday, of course. That must have been so emotional for you to to be at those um, those cemeteries with the Canadian War Dead. Well, Roy, uh, I, I encourage anybody to go uh, go to Normandy on the fourth, the sixth of June, uh, for their celebrations. Um, they just the emotion of the people uh, was incredible to see the love for the veterans. And the families were coming down from Holland and Belgium. Uh, yeah, it was very, very overwhelming. I learned so much. I, the incredible dignity of our veterans, you know. Um, none of them wanted to talk about what happened. But we were in this scene at the uh, Benny sur mer Cemetery, you know, thousands of Canadian yes. war dead then. There yes. and these two young Normandy girls read a poem to the dead. And they, the poem went something like, we are the children that you never had. We are the children of mm-hmm. liberty, which I took right out of that and put into the song but i mean people were weeping when they read that poem and then charles scott brown tough old veteran stood up and he said to these young girls he said don't cry for any man in this cemetery he said they came to free you and every one of us would do it again if we had to i mean wow you know yeah yeah absolutely powerful powerful thing to hear and to see in a place like that it is you know and uh 
we've played veterans talking about that, about the hell they've gone through or went through. Uh, ones who are no longer with us, but set at the time in their 80s. I do it all again. Charlie, uh, thank you for the song. It's available. Where, where can uh, folks get your album and, and find the song? Well, right now uh, it's available on iTunes, uh, the Grievous Angels Summer Before the Storm album. Uh, the video is uh, is on YouTube with a, a number of the photos of the veterans who are, they, that they might be the last group of veterans to go to Normandy, the 75th anniversary. So I put a number of the photos of those veterans up. So you can find it on YouTube as well. Yeah, um, I, I found it there. And I'll, I'll, I'll put the link on uh, on Twitter, post the link to Twitter. Okay, so let's get into business here with uh, with the Ethics Committee, of which you are a member, the NDP member. So what is going on? You abstained on a vote uh, the other day. Did, did you just wipe something out? No, uh, the vote that I abstained on was because the block had... Uh, the bloc had totally screwed things up and voted with the Liberals, and then they got heat, and then they tried to bring their vote back, which you can't do. Uh, and I have a great respect for our chair, but I also have a real respect for the rules. And I just said, this is, this is, <laughs> as much as I wanted to get this thing moving, um, I don't think it's right. So I abstained, but it passed. So then, uh, then the block attempted to get their motion added to a much larger motion that I'm driving, and I supported it because I said, well, if the chair has ruled it in order, then it is in order, so let's get down to business. So we have a motion to get the WE study back up. Roy, we've got a motion to get the documents, and we've got more and more filibustering. So rather than get into the, you know, the he said, she said, like all the minutiae of this relentless filibustering, let's just pull back for a second. We're now almost four months. Uh, of the Liberal government blocking a parliamentary study and report on what went down with the Kielbergers. That is unprecedented. But in the last week, we learned a very powerful American foundation has been taking out ads. I don't know who's paying for it. I guess they are exonerating the Kielbergers, debunking everything that we're hearing at committee. So we have a Canadian parliamentary committee blocked from its work, an American foundation, the Stillman Foundation, paying for full-page ads debunking the work we're doing, uh, all in the name of this group that's supposed to be this charity that helps children. Uh, I think there's <laughs> something fundamentally wrong with that. So, Charlie, and, and we have about a minute and a half here. Yeah. What do you suspect is going on? Do you think that Mr. Trudeau, assisted ably by his caucus, is trying to uh, intentionally and with great determination keep information from the Canadian people? Um, Roy... This is a group that pretty much was given the, you know, ambassador status for Canada. You know, when they went to England, the prime minister's wife came with them. When Canada wanted to, the Trudeau government wanted to show Canada off at the UN, they sent the WE group to set up this meet a WE. They were deeply embedded with them. And yet there's many, many questions about how this organization ran. They don't seem to meet any of the national, the international standards for NGOs working with charities. There's multiple companies, and yet when they were in financial trouble, they could call into Bill Morneau's office. They could call uh, Madame Chagger. None of this was lo registered to lobby, and they would have gotten upwards of $912 million. You can't run a system when people who just know people can call in and get that kind of money from government. It should never be allowed to happen. And the fact that we're not getting these answers and they continue to block tells me, Roy, 
uh, that these guys are seriously being protected right now. That's how else you look at it. This, this report should have been done months ago. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.